always like it when Ash Wednesday comes in February because you still see winter. There, there's not a lot of signs of new life yet. And to think that by the end of this season, there's going to be green growth and flowers, sunshine, um, signs of spring. And, and, and to think about this one season, how we will just watch transformation happen. Uh, that's what the season of Lent is about. It's a season of transformation. As Eric so well pointed out, uh, we often think about Lenten practices and disciplines, things that we give up during Lent. It's, it's meant to open us to what we want to receive. And it's a good thing to practice some kind of self-denial and sacrifice. For some people, that's a huge thing. Giving up chocolate for this season is a big deal. But you give it up so that you can focus on what God wants to give us. Lent is a season of 40 days. And for those of you fact checkers out there who right now are counting the calendar and saying, wait a minute, there are 46 days between now and Easter Sunday. That's because the Sundays in the season of Lent are not counted as part of the season. Sundays become a day of breaking from our fasts, whatever self-denial practices we have, and we worship and we celebrate. So they're days of celebration. The rest of the mood of Lent's rather somber. You're focusing on the death of Jesus. That's why we wear black and look like a bunch of funeral directors during this season of Lent. It fits the mood because a lot of times we want to jump from life to life to life and forget that death is a part of life. And sometimes we don't get to a new stage of life if we don't die to something. If we don't say, it's time to end that season. It's time to end that portion of my life. It's time to end uh, that habit or practice or whatever is holding me back from that celebration of life. The season originated as a, a tithe of the days of the year, one-tenth. So 36 days to focus on the uh, sacrifice and the passion of Jesus. Over, over the years, four more days were added to make it a season of 40 days in keeping with the significance of 40 in the Bible. It rained 40 days, 40 nights in the time of uh, Noah. Uh, Moses led the Israelites for 40 years. Jesus began his ministry going into the wilderness for 40 days. In other words, when you see 40 in the Bible, you know that this is talking about a period of transformation, something transformative happening. And so that's what is meant to happen in this season for us. It's, it's a transformative experience where we allow ourselves to enter into the sacrifice, the suffering, the death of Jesus so that we can enter into the new life of Jesus that is celebrated with his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And to help us in this practice of transformation this year, we begin today a focus on the questions Jesus asked. This is kind of a good follow-up series to the way we started the year with faith and doubt. When we talk about doubt, we usually think about our questions. Well, we're going to turn that around. It's still a series about faith, but our beginning point will be the questions that Jesus asked. Do you know how many questions Jesus asked in the Gospels? Let's take a little poll. 
how many of you would say Jesus asked around 20 questions? No takers, all right. How many of you say Jesus asked about 50 questions? Got a few? How many of you would say it was probably more like 100 questions? Oh, quite a few more. How many of you would say it was 300 or more? You would be right. Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. It's an important teaching device where a wise teacher realizes that the most important answers of life can never be handed to us. They're already inside of us. They have to be teased out with questions. Lovett Weems, a United Methodist leader, says that a key mark of leadership is not one who feels like he or she has to have the right answers. A great leader is one who has the right questions. So this series is hardly going to be exhaustive of the 300 and some questions Jesus asked. We've reduced it to what we believe are the 10 most important questions because we'll carry them from the Sundays into Holy Week. And we start today with the question, what are you looking for? Let's put the question in context. John the Baptist led a spiritual revival preaching repentance to get ready for the kingdom of God. One day, two of John the Baptist's disciples are standing with him when Jesus went by. Now, anybody who's been spending time with John knows he has been telling people, I'm not the dude. There's somebody else coming. My job is just to get ready for the dude. And you will know it's the dude when you hear me say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So two disciples are standing there. Jesus walks by. He gives the cue. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's it for John. Not mentioned again in the Gospel of John. The two disciples start walking behind Jesus. And he turns to them and he says, what are you looking for? Pretty straightforward question. It's a good question for us to think about. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us the name of one of the two disciples of John the Baptist who are now following Jesus, Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter. But the other person's not named. And you wonder if that might be a literary device that the writer of the gospel is inviting us to put ourselves in that disciple's shoes. That disciple's not named. It could be anybody. It could be you and me. So if Jesus said to you right now, what are you looking for? What would you say? What would you say? It's a good question. It shows that Jesus cares what we're looking for in life. Maybe, maybe we're looking for faith. Maybe we're looking for some hope. Maybe, maybe we're looking for comfort. Maybe we're looking for clarity about something. Maybe we're looking for direction. Maybe we're looking for love. What are you looking for? I've been asking that question myself lately from a, a unique angle. 
I am applying for a Lilly Endowment Clergy Renewal Grant. It provides for a sabbatical. And I'm looking at taking a sabbatical in 2024. And the Lilly Endowment provides a very generous grant for clergy persons to be able to do this, but it's a very thick application process. So our staff parish has supported me in this. We've put together a grant uh, committee who's going to work with making this application because the church has to do it. It's not just an application by the pastor. The church really is, is the one making the application. So the key question that you have to make your proposal around is an answer to this question. What makes your heart sing? You have to write a narrative that says what I'm proposing for my sabbatical would make my heart sing. And everybody I've talked with says that's what they're looking for. They want to know, Rob, what makes your heart sing? So a couple weeks ago, and, and here's another little piece behind this, I thought I had until August to make the application. Until right before Christmas, the district superintendent said, that's not right. That's when the, the recipients are announced, the people who get chosen. The applications do March 15th. And then, as many of you knew, I had a few things happen during the month of January with my dad, who had an accident, who passed away. And so we're really just now digging into this. So two weeks ago, Susan and I were up in Chicago visiting our daughter. We went to a, a coffee shop one day, and she sat down. She said, okay, we've got to get going on this thing. We've got to get the proposal idea. I'm just going to type. You talk. What would make your heart sing? And I just sat there. Susan said, any time now, I'm ready to start. What would make your heart sing? And I said, I don't think I know. I don't know. Things that used to make my heart sing don't do that for me anymore. I'm not sure. I've been in such a grind, a routine. What would make my heart sing? And so I've really had to work on that and live with it. And I don't want you to worry about me. I'm not in some midlife crisis. I'm I'm past midlife, so... (laughs) I share that honest admission, that confession with you because it's a liberating question. It's a question that takes you down deep inside into your heart and say, what would make my heart sing? And you have to start living with that. You really start living with, what did God put me here for? Because God wants our hearts to sing. God wants us to live with joy and wonder and excitement and energy, and it's easy to lose that. And my, my belief is some of you maybe would be as stumped by the question as I have been. Some of you are probably in a place where you might be saying, I, I don't know either. I mean, I'm in this place of life. I'm post-COVID. Life has resumed in many ways. I'm back to my routine. I'm, I'm taking kids to school and going to work, but I know something's missing, and I don't know what it is. Some of you are in a place right now where your life looks very different 
than it did a few years ago for all kinds of reasons. And you're maybe realizing some flames have flickered. And you're wondering what, what would make my heart sing. Trevor Hudson is a Methodist leader from South Africa. And he says that this question of Jesus, this question of, of what are we looking for, is, is a heart question. That when we deal with the heart, we are considering who we are and who we really want to become. So he has a suggestion about how to get at the heart of this question. He says, if you really want to get deep into the desires of your heart, then write your own eulogy. That's his suggestion. He said, think about when you die and somebody gets up and eulogizes your life, what do you want them to say? If you want to get at what are the real desires of, of your heart, you start thinking about where's your life going? What are you doing right now? And what, if you don't change anything about your life right now, what's it going to look like in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years? And is that where you want to be? And it's a good thought to begin digging down and considering what are the desires of my heart. That is the kind of question that Jesus asked. And it's the kind of question that Jesus doesn't ask just anybody. He knew that the two people walking behind him had been followers of John the Baptist. He knew they were already seeking something in their lives. This is a question for people who are willing to engage and say, what do I want my life to be about? It's not a superficial question. Jesus did not ask this question of the crowds who came to his miracles. If he would have said to the crowds, what do y'all want? What are you looking for? Well, they'd have said, we want to be fed. We want to be healed. We want a miracle. And then they would get on about their other lives. I can't imagine Jesus showing up in downtown Indianapolis and asking any passerby on the street, what are you looking for? You can imagine, I'm looking for $100,000. That's what it would take to get me out of debt and get my life back into a good place. That's what I need. Somebody would say, oh, oh, I, I want my girlfriend to get her head on straight and come back home and, 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 and that would get my life back where I want. But there's a difference between having life under our control and having new life. And Jesus asked this question of people who are really looking for new life. They're looking for something different. It's intended for deep seekers, and you don't rush that answer. It requires slowing down and reflecting on everything going on with us and where God is in the midst of it all. Now notice that Andrew and this unnamed disciple answer Jesus' question with a question. Jesus asks, what are you looking for? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Uh, the word in Greek for stay is meno, M-E-N-O. 
it can mean a couple of things. It's one of those words with a double meaning. It can have a very practical, simple meaning to it. Where are you staying? What is your address? But it has another depth of meaning. It can mean abide. What's going on with you? Not just where are you living, but what are you living for? And they want to know in Jesus, could you be a source of what I want to live for in my life? Three times in these few verses, that word minnow appears. Jesus, where you stay? They found where Jesus was staying. They stayed with Jesus. And they must have found something. Because right after that, Andrew goes and finds his brother and says, we found the one. We found the dude. We found the guy. We found the one who can answer those questions for us. If you're not quite sure, what would be the desires of your heart? What are you looking for? Then just know that as you slow down and you take that question to Jesus, that in that process, he'll help you come to some answers. In fact, here are a few other questions you might consider that could be helpful as you think about what are your desires and maybe as you live with this question during this season of Lent. We're going to consider other questions, but keep this one in the background. Hold on to this one and stir on it for 40 days. So here are some other questions. How do I want to be remembered? As someone who had time for people or who wanted to be important? As someone who was generous or tight-fisted? As someone who was understanding or powerful? As someone who was fun to be with or had high standards? Those are just a few. But they're helpful questions. And if you're taking any exception right now to the either-orness of them, and you're going, now wait a minute. Can't, can't we have both on some of those? Yeah, I think you can. I think on many of those you can have both, but don't fool yourself. We all cheat one way or the other. If there's any part of us that really does want to be seen as somebody who is powerful, who is popular, who is influential, who is spendthrifty, we will shorten the other side. And if we get really clear about what we want said about us at our eulogy, then we go, you know what? I start today living that way. I start today moving in that direction because that's who I want to be. I've been around older people all my ministry. When I was at Lake Junaluska, North Carolina, we had a load of retired pastors in our churches and, and actually a number of retired bishops. And there are a few retirees here at St. Luke's. I'm getting not that far away from retirement myself. I've noticed something. Being around people after retirement, they love to talk about themselves. 
They love to remember things they did. They'll tell stories again and again about accomplishments they had in their careers, the churches they served, the programs they were a part of, the things that they fought for. I mean, the older we all get, the more we do this, the more we'll talk about ourselves. I've realized something. I believe we do that because deep down, the older we get, the more we want to know that our lives mattered. The more we want to know I did something in my life that counted, that made a difference, that I didn't just spend time on this earth. I, I did something of good. And I've realized a certain paradox about this. That yes, our lives matter, but they might not be remembered. Being remembered is not a determiner of whether or not our lives matter. Being remembered does not determine that. What determines it is when we live in such a way that we seek to let God use us. That's what matters. And I believe we all come to find before the end of life that that is the one thing that counts. How did I let God use me? Let me close with this story about my predecessor, Kent Millard. Many of you know Kent. Many of you have had your lives touched by Kent. But you would have never known Kent had it not been for somebody you do not know. When Kent was a boy growing up in a small town in South Dakota, he has told this himself, that his father was an alcoholic. And there were many times it would get out of control. Finally, one time, his father went on such a binge that he was picked up by the local police and put in jail. The jailer happened to be a Methodist. Being a small town, everybody knew everybody. This man knew Kent's father, and he knew his family, that he had kids at home. He could have said, I'm a jailer. My job is if somebody breaks the law or they do something that warrants them being here, that I keep them here, that's my job. But he lived for something different. He called some men in his church, said, hey, I need you guys to come by here. And they got Kent's dad. And they took him to an AA group that met at the church. And something miraculous happened. Kent's dad never drank a drop again. He started going to church. And one Sunday, he came down forward with his family to give his life to Christ and join the Methodist church. And Kent came down with him and he said he just started crying and he didn't know why. He just knew something was different about his dad. And if whatever that difference was could do that for his dad... He wanted it to do that for him. And Kent grew up in the church and answered a call to ministry. We know Kent. 
We don't know who that jailer is. He might not be remembered. But I'm glad he was somebody who at some point in his life probably asked the question, what am I looking for? And how can God make a difference through me? Let us pray. Lord, as we continue to worship now, we join in this ancient act and ritual of receiving ashes upon our heads in the form of a cross, remembering that we all return to ashes one day, but we are more than ashes. And what we do with these days of ours can make an eternal difference. So as we think about the difference that we want to make in our lives and what we want our lives to be about, may we give time in this season just to stay on that question. What am I looking for? What are the deep desires of my heart right now at this time? And what might you, Lord, do with the answers we come up with? What suggestions might you give to our answers? What tweaks might you offer that will help us land upon the answers we're really looking for? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite our pastor.